two people. Welcome to Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, the internet's favorite podcast about why Sophie and I are wrong. I'm Amos, a co-host. I'm Sophie. I'm your other co-host. And this is a show where uh, one of us talks for a little while about something, uh, probably something that that person doesn't know too much about, and then the other one uh, sets them straight and lets them know where they're wrong and maybe where they're uh, not so wrong. Um Sophie, we have some business to talk about before we get into the show, don't we? We do. So this is uh, season one, episode five, and some people may be a little confused about the whole season thing since this isn't a TV show, but but the way we're doing this is we're going to... But gonna... we're thinking about making it a TV show. It'll be animated. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Oh, someone, dear listeners, someone please do this. Someone set, someone set uh, one of our episodes to animation. And um, can we be cops? Hard-boiled cops. Hard-boiled animated cops. Just like having, just shooting the shit between... Wonder Woman and... Homicide cases. Uh-huh. Okay. Maybe drinking, drinking black coffee and eating donuts yeah i love it carrot uh, donuts carrot uh, okay <laughs> so um yeah so so the way we're thinking about this is is uh we're gonna do a season of uh six episodes so if you're keeping score at home this this means that our next episode will be the last episode of season one then we're gonna take a short break maybe three or four weeks uh put together our topics for season two, and then we'll, we'll record another six or so episodes for season two. So, uh, after next episode, uh, which should be out in about two weeks, you will get a little short break. Um, so I don't know, play with your kids, take a walk, read a book, whatever, whatever it is you do when you're not listening to us. Get off the internet. Um, Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And, and then get ready for more, uh, hashtag content, uh, when we're back with season two. Um, so, uh, another thing at, at the end of each episode, I tell everyone to rate and review us on iTunes. It has come to my attention that not everyone has rated and reviewed us on iTunes. Sophia, how many ratings and reviews have we got so far? I think zero. Zero, zero ratings and reviews, which is, um, I know we've got more than zero listeners. So, um, so here's the deal. We've, we've got an offer for you listeners. If by the time uh, we record our next episode, we have at least five reviews in iTunes, uh, we will record a season one bonus episode. It will be full of exciting uh, stuff. Um, I'm not really sure what yet, but it, it won't be our regular format. I think it'll be a little bit more freewheeling uh, instead of just the, the two topics. Uh, I think you know one thing we'll do is... Um, uh, follow up on a couple uh, dangling threads from earlier in the season, and then um, I think uh, we maybe will respond to any listener feedback we get, anything, something like that, and uh, yeah. just do some fun topics. Absolutely, and um, so give us a chance to say all the things we really wish we had said in that c- clever, yeah. super smart way that we wish we had said them during the episode in a bonus. Yeah, Sophie taught me what esprit de escalier means last yeah. week uh-huh. and uh i'm really that's excited. what it'll be i'm really excited to use that in a podcast so please yeah. uh rate and review us on itunes uh for serious so with that uh, let's get on with the show okay we today's episode is uh self and other and we're going to kick it off with oh, oh i guess are we we're talking starting with self aren't we 
I think so. Okay, good. So I just put my notes in the wrong order. That's okay. Uh, Sophie, why don't, why don't you start us off then? Sure. Well, speaking of self or lack thereof, we're going to start off with a small discussion of Zen Buddhism, which happens to be something that you, Amos, know a bunch about, and I know less. But mm. nevertheless, I have opinions, and I'm about to give them to you. Right. Can't <laughs> Zen wait. Buddhism. It's present enough in popular culture that most people can at least recognize it by reputation. Something that coastal liberals, Hollywood stars, tech moguls, your Japanese grandma, your yoga instructor, and maybe the gym teacher or psychologist at the local middle school seem to think it's good for you. It's popular. Uh, it's a popular and even popularized practice associated in the popular imagination, that is, with silence, giant pillows, and tranquility. Based in meditation, compassion, and renunciation of materiality, it grants its devotees acceptance, transcendence, and calm, giving rise to the often heard phrase, well, I'm in a Zen place about it. And yet, in its rejection of desire and attachment, it may be uh, at least somewhat misanthropic, perhaps bringing, in the, bringing the practitioner some measure of relief from suffering, but pissing off everyone around her. And some have suggested that it was developed as a coping strategy for only the most desperate of times and never meant to be utilized as a long-term worldview or set of principles, and that it may be dangerous to do so. So beneath a fluffy, relaxed, gentle exterior is a set of punishing ideas and practices that are perhaps not helpful socially in the long term. But tell me why I'm wrong. Ooh, wow. No, you weren't kidding when you... Wow, yeah. <laughs> So b just before the episode, Sophie let me know that she had some obnoxious things to say about Zen. Well, and, you know, and I didn't know what they were going to be. But some of our listeners gave us some some unofficial casual feedback that we hadn't told each other that we were wrong as much, and that I was sort of, you know, maybe being too gentle. So I thought I'd kick oh, it up a notch. You have kicked it up. Um, jeez. <laughs> so for starters, there's I uh, there's a lot of not wrong things in there. Oh, I love it when I'm not wrong. Yeah. I mean, like this idea of like punishing practices, you know, there's, there's a lot of that in Zen. Like, you know, I, I, I've done, done my fair share of Zen retreats where wake up is 3 a.m. Cool. Uh, and if you, if you break the formal etiquette, someone yells at you. And there's a guy walking around the meditation hall with a big stick who, and he smacks who, you around. who hits you with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, officially getting hit with the stick is an act of compassion. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't always feel that way. No. Um, but I, th I think the the bigger point is that it's something. It, it seems like like what you're suggesting is that it's something that is, you know, at best helpful for an individual, but possibly harmful for society, or at least not helpful. Well, I did suggest that. I'm not sure that I actually think that, but I'm well, ready to hear why yeah. that's not the case. Let's let's kick that around a little. Kick bit. Kick it around. Um, I think you could certainly say that. Um, society would have big problems if everyone became uh, a serious Zen practitioner. Mm. Um, you know, like if everyone became a, a monk and tried to live in a monastery, there'd be no one to do anything. And, and you know, monks have always depended upon the kindness and support of uh, 
lay communities to exist. Mm-hmm. And that's, right. you know, that's not just a Zen thing. That's a monastic thing, period. And it is, you know, that's why they sometimes get called parasites and get all their stuff taken away. Right. Uh, but at least in uh, the Catholic tradition of monks and nuns, there was at one point in the medieval period, at least a worldview that you needed all three orders of society to make the world work. So right. you have what were the, the three people, orders? Uh, peasants who farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of nobles and knights who fight and the um, religious community that pray. I mean, everybody prays. You got to pray. It's the Middle Ages. But, it's how you make uh, it through the day. It's how you make it through the day. But that there were nuns and monks, in even those who were cloistered and not out in the world doing work and creating hospitals and, and uh, taking care of people, but even those who were enclosed, the fact that they prayed, their prayers made the world work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people really did believe that. As things change, though, right, there is there does become a sense of like, well, what are they? What have you done for me lately? Right. Um, your prayers don't make the world go around. My growing food does or my doing these other thing does. And you're just sort of taking up space. Yeah. So so I think it might be helpful to to zoom out a little bit and to get a little bit specific about what exactly Zen looks like in the real world instead of um, instead of sort of popular conceptions of it. I think that's exactly right. So in Let's do ja- it. yeah, in Japan, there are two main branches of Zen. There's uh, Soto, which is the, the more popular version. I want to say by at least like a three to one margin. Um, and uh, Soto, like every village has a, a little Soto temple. And, um, and their primary function is, is really to do funerals. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, you know, there's a saying, it's like um, uh, Shinto weddings and Buddhist funerals. Right. Um, so so there's, there is a sort of social function there that they fulfill of, of, of doing funerals and acting as, you know, like village religious institutions, like mm-hmm. as sort of like little parishes. Um, uh, Rinzai is a little, little bit different. It's got this tradition of, of being sort of like the Zen of samurais and this sort of martial spirit and being yeah. sort of a little bit more upper class. And, you know, I'm not really sure what, what Rinzai is like in Japan or how it's, how it's seen by, by the larger populace. Um, but but, you know, in Japan, there's at least in Soto, there's this real sort of thing where it's like to the extent that they that Soto temples have this social function of of performing funerals and the temple generally gets handed from father to son. And it's sort of a family business. Mm. Um, that's actually something that that some people really reject and say that they've actually lost the spiritual dimension. And it's mm-hmm. just just be- yeah, it's just become a family business and an occupation that has uh, funnier clothes, but, um, but yeah, has maybe lost some of the spiritual function. Um, and then Zen in America is, is very different because there, there are actually very, very few actual monks or nuns. It's, it's almost all lay people practicing. Um, so in that sense, there's not really that much of a conflict because, um, Almost by definition, people exist out in the world doing worldly things in addition to uh, monastic things. And a lot of people in in the U.S. will go and train for 
a period of time, several years maybe, and then they'll be sort of asked to move on and go back to the world and maybe start teaching themselves, but also to work um, secular jobs. So I think, I think it's a little, I think there's something there in this, this tension, but, but I also see it as a, as in the real world as a little bit of a false, uh, a false dichotomy, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Um, and I had something I was going to say, and now I've forgotten what it was, which is really embarrassing, uh, because here we are all listening to my objections, which Mm -hmm. now I can't remember because they've evaporated. Uh, but it'll come back in a second, I'm sure. Okay. Um, but I remembered it. Oh, okay. I remembered it. So, Let's hear it. Uh, so this isn't an objection at all. This is sort of backing you up in a way. And although asking another question, which is maybe you can say something about how Zen differs from uh, other forms of Buddhism in right. general, because uh, one of the things that I've taught when I've taught, say, world history, um, has to do with the development of Buddhism, which of course, as you pointed out, begins almost entirely as a monastic situation. Yeah. There's not a sort of um, secular, it's not something that you sort of practice and you're out in the world at the same time. And yet, at the same time, it's a really valuable moment when teaching world history because it's one of the first moments that you can find people being really interested in nonviolence mm-hmm. um, and an understanding of violence that doesn't accept it necessarily as just part of the world and uh, a way of getting what you want and a way of getting all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily that every person actually believed that and was a big bully and wanted to punch their neighbor, but people in power who wrote things down mostly yeah, I mean, it's said sort of how like society this. was organized. Yes, right. To and, some extent. Uh, Right. And again, we don't get the voices, especially in ancient history, we don't get the voices of people who maybe felt differently. But Mm -hmm. it's a really important moment because suddenly you can say, aha, uh, maybe this isn't such a great way to live. Maybe uh, beating up on people and uh, understanding them as, you know, basically, if you get beat up, then uh, you deserved it and I'm better. Maybe that's not such a great way to live. Maybe, in fact, you damage yourself when you do that because you don't recognize uh, the suffering of another person is your suffering, too. Um, That's a really important turning point. So so So, maybe you can say a few things about that. Yeah, sure. So I I should say, like, like I think think Zen has a a little bit of a more ambivalent relationship to violence than other types of Buddhism. Because of the guys with the big sticks or because of the samurais? Maybe both. (laughs) Um... And, and I feel maybe, like there is a Star Wars tie-in here somewhere. I mean, it's vulgar, but but it's in there somewhere, don't you well, think? Uh, you may, started maybe, it. Well, no. We'll, we'll, remind me. We'll come back to that because there's, <laughs> there's something very specific, actually. But is it but, about Yoda? It is. Yeah. Um, there's there's. Uh, I just think there's 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 an acceptance of violence as a teaching tool in Zen that mm-hmm. I'm not aware of now and i should say i haven't practiced any other styles of buddhism so i don't Mm -hmm. know any i don't know that much about them but i'm not aware of them as being a thing but like here's here's a little story um so zen uses these little teaching stories called koans Mm um i should say zen uses they're much more prevalent in rinzai zen than soto i think they're used a little bit in soto but in in rinzai they're really a primary monastic teaching tool um and uh, I, I might read a couple others, but uh, one of them is called Gute Raises a Finger. I love these things, by the way. Yeah. I'm so ready. I'm ready. Whenever I'm so Gute ready. Osho was asked about Zen, he simply raised his finger. 
Once a visitor asked Goutet's boy attendant, What does your master teach? The boy too raised his finger. Hearing of this, Goutet cut off the boy's finger with a knife. <laughs> the boy, screaming with pain, began to, turn, began to run away. Goutet called to him, and when he turned around, Goutet raised his finger. The boy suddenly became enlightened. Uh, when Goutet was about to pass away, he said to his assembled monks, I obtained one finger Zen from Tenryu and used it all my life, but still did not exhaust it. When he had finished saying this, he entered into eternal nirvana. Uh, so, you know, so it's, in it's my a story. unenlightened state, I'm like, that guy's an asshole. Yeah, he cut off the boy's finger. Uh, <laughs> he just straight up <laughs> cut it off with a knife. Uh, you know, an, another one. So the, these these uh, these koans are from uh, a collection called the Muman Khan, which uh, means the gateless gate. And and I'm going to read another one. This is case one from the Muman Khan, and it's it's probably the most famous and most important um, koan in Zen. So a monk asked Joshu, "Has a dog Buddha nature?" Joshu answered, "Mu," and and mu there means not or no. And and then here's the the guy who collected these. His name was Mumon. Here's his his um, uh, commentary on that. In order to master Zen, you must pass the barrier of the patriarchs. To obtain this subtle realization, you must completely cut off the way of thinking. If you do not pass the barrier and do not cut off the way of thinking, then you will be like a ghost clinging to the bushes and weeds. Now, I want to ask you, what is the barrier of the patriarchs? Why it is this single word mu? That is the front gate to Zen. Therefore, it is called the Muman Khan of Zen. If you pass through it, you will not only see Joshu face to face, but you will also go hand in hand with the successive patriarchs, entangling your eyebrows with theirs, seeing with the same eyes, hearing with the same ears. Isn't that a delightful prospect? Wouldn't you like to pass this barrier? Arise your, arouse your entire body with its 360 bones and joints and its 84,000 pores of the skin. Summon up a spirit of great doubt and concentrate on this word mu. Carry it continuously day and night. Do not form a nihilistic conception of vacancy or a relative conception of has or has not. It will be just as if you swallow a red-hot iron ball, which you cannot spit out even if you try. All the illusory ideas and delusive thoughts accumulated up to the present will be exterminated when the time comes. Internal and external will be spontaneously united. You will know this, but for yourself only, like a dumb man who has had a dream. Then, all of a sudden, an explosive conversion will occur, and you will astonish the heavens and shake the earth. It will be as if you snatch away the great sword of the valiant General Kanu and hold it in your hand. When you meet the Buddha, you kill him. When you meet the patriarchs, you kill them. On the brink of life and death, you command perfect freedom. Among the sixfold worlds and four modes of existence, you enjoy a merry and playful samadhi. Now, I want to ask you again, how will you carry it out? Employ every ounce of your energy to work on this move. If you hold on without interruption, behold, a single spark and the holy candle is lit. So, again, it's... it's you know it's metaphorical but there there's there's these ideas in zen uh, or or uh a willingness to talk about violence and um and use it in training as as a way of 
breaking through sort of normal experience. And and mm. here in in this commentary on the on on this koan, I, you know, I think it's more of like an expression of of the the fact that when you're in a state of perfect freedom, um, you know, Buddha and the patriarchs themselves become meaningless. Um, mm. Or, or really, you know, you you are Buddha and the patriarchs because you your your you I love the eyebrows. eyebrows. It's yeah. beautiful. I mean, the whole thing is beautiful. Uh, mm. I love I f- that. I love that. Commentary. I feel very much like a you know very beginner when sure. I'm confronted with it. Right? It makes you feel very small and f- yes. humble and confused and full of doubt, which I think is so productive. Um, I'm still worried about the dog. Like I'm still way back there with. Why doesn't the dog have Buddha nature? Yeah, because I yeah. mean, have you met a dog? So I mean, seems like they do. <laughs> so and, I don't know and, anybody who's as like happy as dogs, and just which little... I understand is not the point of Zen, right? You're not supposed to be happy, which I think is right. what's hard for a lot of people who get interested in it as a way of calming their thoughts or mm-hmm. um, kind of. It's a great way in. But but you know at but the same time, well right maybe that's true. I'd like to hear more about that. But I think it's hard for a lot of people, Americans maybe who. Like what we think is the end goal of any practice is happiness mm-hmm. or love mm-hmm. or some kind of connection or fullness as opposed to some kind of emptiness and freedom. The freedom of emptiness is like, what the, ah, it's scary. Um, so, I mean, I would say even in, in Zen anyway, you, you you need to be careful even with that because attachment to emptiness is still attachment. attachment yeah. Right? And that's something, I mean, that's something that's really talked about a lot that yeah. you can have an experience of emptiness or no self, but you can't, you can't become attached to that point. So, uh, I mean, just to, to go back to the dog a little bit and to explain why this is confusing or why the moo is an interesting response. Um, so the, the earliest forms of Buddhism, you know, starting out of like the Buddha's own community around 500 BC, um, that style of Buddhism or, 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 or the style of Buddhism that that most closely resembles today is called Theravada. It's still practiced in Southeast Asia and, uh, and in, in the Western world too. You know, if you've heard of like insight meditation, that's, mm-hmm. that's Theravada style Buddhism. Um, and, and that was my, my understanding. And this, again, this is not, not really my bag, but my understanding is that the, the position there was that Buddha nature was something that had to be developed um, through practice. And mm-hmm. so only monks had the had the opportunity to be saved um and to experience saved from it. what? Uh the wheel of samsara, the the cycle okay. of rebirth and re- and death and rebirth. Um uh and then later on there was this what's called Mahayana Buddhism came about um which was had a much more sort of universalist orientation. Mm-hmm. Where they said, like, no, everyone and everything has Buddha nature. It's right. just a question of of realizing it mm-hmm. and, and seeing and understanding that. So Zen is is part of Mahayana Buddhism. So asking, does the dog have Buddha nature? You know, according to Mahayana doctrine, the answer would be yes. Of course, everything has Buddha nature. But mm-hmm. but Joshu answers by saying not or no. Um, and so that's that's sort of part of why the why the that interaction is interesting or significant like it's it's not clear why he's saying no right so this reminds me of uh one time you wanted to do and maybe we will i hope we will i would need to really read up but you wanted to do an episode on heidegger uh and why heidegger is so crazy and terrible yet really important and meaningful to a lot of people even people who reject other 
pieces of him, which I yeah. think are uh, uh, highly worth rejecting. Like the Nazi stuff. Uh, right. But so, you know, he says that everything has being stones mm-hmm. have being, sure. um, of course the problem here is that then he decides that certain kinds of people don't have being and should be, uh, fired from their jobs anyway. yeah. and, 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 uh, harmed and possibly killed. But, um, but it seems to me that this is a, a point of connection and maybe one reason why some philosophers who are interested in Buddhism and are also interested in somebody like Heidegger, yeah. uh, this, uh, this idea that all things have some kind of being to them, but that some are maybe able to realize it more, or there's a hierarchy of, I don't know, a hierarchy of accessing that or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, so I guess the, the other thing I want to touch on that I think is important and that maybe people don't understand about Zen, and I, I should say, I don't, I, let me back this up a little bit. It's, uh, uh, my experience with Zen is not really academic. It's, it's from being part of a practice tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I'm aware that that's a, a different way of learning about uh, a tradition. Um, so... I can I can only sort of talk about the the specific branch that I've been involved in with any sort of specificity, mm-hmm. and that's that's a specific branch that you know the the Myoshinji branch of of Rinzai Zen. So what I'm saying may not may not uh, really apply to other types of Zen. I'm I'm honestly not really sure, but but I think people think of Zen as as being maybe about experiencing no self. Like I think people are familiar with that term, maybe mm-hmm. and. Or, or maybe you know, with Buddhism in general, they think of it as as a practice in order to realize that everything is is the same, or everything mm-hmm. is one, or everything is an illusion. Yeah, or or the separateness of things is an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's the story of the Buddha um, becoming enlightened. He he sat under the Bodhi tree, Bodhi tree, meditating for seven days, and then looked up and saw the morning star, and and realized that he was the the morning star mm-hmm. and that was his sort of enlightenment experience. Mm-hmm. So Zen certainly talks about those experiences and values them. Um, but that's only half of things. Like they, we would talk about that as being like um, the, the experiencing no self or experiencing uh, the minus the negative principle, mm-hmm. but there's also like a positive principle. Um, and when you experience that, you experience everything in the world as being exactly what it is, separate and distinct, right? but absolutely equal. This is fascinating. I think you're right. A lot of people don't ever hear that. Yeah. And, and for most people, the, the experience of no self and, and maximum small uh, comes more easily. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the, that... Uh, Joshu's Mu, that koan, is about experiencing maximum small, and that's sort mm-hmm. of, and again, that's sort mm-hmm. of the gate to Zen. But then mm-hmm. there are, there are other koans that are about experiencing um, this uh, largeness, um, mm-hmm. where where uh, yeah, everything everything is perfectly distinct and exactly what it is, but you experience it with no judgment whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And you know, I want to go back to something you said about being a part of a practice because it seems to me that, uh, so you talked about teaching and you talked about 
practice. And Both let me, of those let me things... also just jump in to say that I'm mm-hmm. in no way qualified to teach any of this stuff. Like I have, I have no, no permission so to teach. So don't anybody do anything that Amos is saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm not teaching. I'm just sort of talking about what I've heard. I'm interviewing you. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that seems to me to be perhaps paradoxical, but also not at all and very, um, what's the word, self-evident is that with both teaching and practice, there is always a community. There's, yeah, right. there's no way to be taught without a teacher. I don't care what anyone says. Um, maybe your teacher isn't even a, a human. Maybe your teacher is a book, but I don't really buy that. I think that in most cases we have teachers. Yep. And, and, in, um, and in Zen, you, you would even say like, once you've become enlightened, then everything is your teacher. Right, right. And so the and idea... The, the, the rain and the waterfalls and, and snow and sun... Those sound like good teachers. Yeah, I like those. those. All become your teacher. But but even human teachers and human mm-hmm. people with whom you practice, right? There is a community yeah. that you're a part of, yep. and so whether or not what you're after after is something uh, something that values attachment or rejects attachment, um, you're or whether attachment is even part of it, you're in a community of other human beings, and maybe you could talk a little bit about how that works because it seems to me that that's actually a piece of it and that what i originally was arguing which again i mean was a a a provocation on purpose right i was doing it to to get you to talk about some of these things but uh sort of makes light of that the idea that that zen rejects the social because Mm -hmm. it seems to me that you're very much embedded in it i mean all of these all of these teachings are written you know they're they're coming from people who've had experiences who's Job, who have taken it on as their job, perhaps to to communicate with you for your benefit, something that they know. So there is a deeply social piece here, even though can we have social without the self? That's maybe the question. Well, I mean, again, I would, from a Zen perspective, it's it's uh, it's the wrong question. They would say you you can't have true relatedness without while you still have a self. So does that mean that there's no true relationships except for like five at any given time because there's only that many people who are really enlightened at any given time? Well, I, I don't think they would say that, but but they would, I, I don't think they would say that there's that few people um, mm. who who've experienced, you know, who can experience um, no self or, or experience the maximum large where everything, you know, and that's sort of, they would even call that true love, experiencing maximum large where you're mm. absolutely distinct, but absolutely equal and that's and that's actually the foundation for true relatedness mm-hmm. um which sounds very reasonable to me yeah you know that that said there's um you know this problem of of uh the social aspects of practice it's it's a it's a real issue you know people talk about how you know people go to the monastery to get away from something um and you know, they usually end up bringing it with them. Hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it can be tough to, I, you know, and I should say I've never had like a long-term residency at a monastery, but, you know, I've, I've talked to people who have, and they, they all agree that, um, you know, you, it's tough living in a small community where there's maybe like 10 people there all year mm-hmm. and they just have to deal with each other. And it's, it's very intense socially. Mm-hmm. And, right. You know, you and I went to a, a pretty small college and, and <laughs> that was that was like not really close to anything else. And I think I think we both have had some experience with being part of a small community and how intense and mm-hmm. unpleasant that can be. But also um, really, really special. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, I think one of the things that that 
in my experience, has made Zen a little bit. Well, so let me back up to the Star Wars thing. Um, uh, before you do, let me just, uh, I want to insert something, which okay. is that you said bringing something with you to the monastery that you meant to get away from, which I think is yeah. always true. I mean, that's like the problem with the geographic cure, right? Yeah, that, like, sure. you, you, exactly. you pick up and you go somewhere else, but your problems come with you. But I once read this really interesting study about all kinds of sort of I want to just use the really capacious term self-help, but mm-hmm. sort of things that people do in order to, whether it's a retreat, uh, professionally or personally, any kind of um, thing you go to to better yourself or to kind of break through issues or to get some kind of enlightenment. One of the biggest problems that people find is that when people go home, uh, these kinds of experiences don't do enough to help sure. you reintegrate into your life. Yep. And so you come home and you're just insufferable because <laughs> you've, you've broken through and you've learned all this shit and other people are like, Oh my God, you know, you were gone, but I was mowing the lawn and feeding the dog and you know, and- I didn't get enlightened. And so maybe that's one of the things is that these, these transitions in and out, um, we, we all could do a better job going back and forth between the mm-hmm. two. So in that that movement back and forth again, that's like a big theme in Zen. Right, like I've heard about this from you before. Yeah, mm-hmm. so moving seamlessly back and forth from experience the experience of having a self to the experience of not having a self, moving back and forth between maximum large and maximum small, and, and that you always have to right. I mean, didn't you tell me a maybe it's a koan or maybe it's just something that a teacher of yours said about um, you know the the lovers can stay in bed for a long time, but. Not yeah, right, forever. right. Yeah, right. Exactly. You come you together. You always have to come back. You come together and sooner or later you have to use the bathroom. And then, <laughs> right. Like you come together in unity and then, you know, it's just, it's a natural activity that you then split apart again. Right. Um, and, and that's, that's okay. It. And that yep. that's part of it. And I think so often people are speaking of attached, attached to the idea that once I've achieved this sense of whatever it is, that's good that I understand myself or I understand mm-hmm. things, I'll never have to give that up. I can just walk around with that right. all the time and I never have to clean the toilet or even I clean the toilet in a state of pure goodness or something. And that's just unrealistic and not part of a practice that is as complex and, uh, well, it's so, I mean, it sort of is part of the practice because part of the part of Zen practice is work practice. Right. Right. Okay. Sure. It's it's called uh, Samu. Um, and, and I think, you know, I've read that one of the issues with, um, sort of American style lay practice is there's actually very little Samu because mm-hmm. if you just go for a week long retreat, it's, it's called a session. You don't do Samu during a session because it's a, it's a dedicated um, mm-hmm. meditation time. If you live in a monastery, you alternate weeks of session. You'd have a session and then you'd have like two weeks where there's less meditation and more work. Mm-hmm. And and that the work is actually really important for integrating the meditative sure. experiences into the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. That would uh, make perfect sense to me. And then and then it's not part of it's it's a part of practice that ends up getting getting skipped by a lot of lay practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think those are all interesting points. But back back to Star Yoda Wars. real quick. Yeah. yeah. So the story I heard, and I can't verify this, but the story I heard is that. Yoda was at least in part based on the Japanese monk who um who sort of brought the practice tradition I was involved in to the US. So he he came to the US in 1962 um and was based in LA um until he died 
Oh, did he die? Yeah. I yeah, thought yeah. he wasn't going to die until the true seed of Zen was planted in America. That's what he said. And, and so I guess I guess it was planted it has been. because he's dead now. He, yep. he died. He was about. I don't know, years. though. You're using the past tense. Are you not involved anymore? You said you yeah, were involved. Yeah, no, I, I, I have not been involved. And, and we'll get to that in a second. But uh, yeah, he, he, um, uh, he died, I want to say. Maybe 2012, actually. Oh, gosh. He, that was, he was about 106, 105 years Sweet. old. So, the, but the, the, the story was that Yoda was based on him because <laughs> uh, he was, you know, he, he was set up in L.A. and a lot of like Hollywood people sort of passed through his mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, stuff. And I, I got to say, the, um, the outfits that, <laughs> that uh, some of the outfits uh, that the Jedi wear look a lot like Zen robes or Zen Absolutely. Outfits, I mean, that's. Right, that that case has been sort of made. Yeah, like Luke wears this sort of white kimono when you first meet him. Right, it's it's, uh, it's very short. Or not, kimono is not the right word, is it? Yeah, no, it is. It's it's like a it's a very short one without the the hakama. Uh, he just has leggings instead. But but so this guy, um, he's based in in Southern California, um, and a few years before he died, it sort of came out that. Um, basically, the whole time he had been active in the U.S., he had been totally sexually harassing and sexually abusing female students. Wait, this same guy? Yeah. yeah this yeah. is not a different guy? This is the same guy that... Same okay. guy. Same guy. Yeah, right. So and it, it ended up being like a really, really horrible, divisive thing within the community. You know, some people felt like uh, senior monks had been protecting him mm-hmm. uh, for... A long time and it was one of those things that everyone knew but no one talked about sure and then people would be like how come there aren't more women involved in our community <laughs> and then uh, some it's a really hostile environment for them yeah Surprise. and some some women would be like oh you know that's just how roshi is you just have to tell him to stop um and you know other women did not feel that way um and I think, you know, like we talked a little bit about how, how there's this sort of acceptance of violence as, a, mm. as mm-hmm. a means of training. And I think for some people, they felt like whatever Roshi was doing, like, which was really, you know, coercing people into performing oral sex and grabbing their boobs and stuff like that was, very disappointing. was part of the training. Um, mm. And, you know, other people, I guess, didn't, didn't feel that way. Well, right. Um, I mean, so it's, and it's gender specific, right? So it's like, yeah, you didn't have right. to train that way. Only women have to train that yeah. way. Delightful. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I think there are, there are like specific issues that have come up in a lot of spiritual communities yes. where, um, people who grew up and trained in single sex mm-hmm. communities came to the U S and started teaching mixed sex communities and were like, I think the, the, um, like the charitable way to look at it would be that they were they were not at all prepared to deal with that. Yeah. Um, it's uh, pretty charitable, though. It's pretty. It's pretty charitable. It's some serious charity. And and there like there are rumors that the reason he got he was sent to the U.S. in the first place is because he was causing scandals back in Japan. Well, this is making me very sad. Yeah. Oh, it made. Uh, yes. No. It made. made I'm me sure it made you sad very, very well. sad. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it, you know it raised a lot of questions like, like well, what am, what am I doing in this in this practice if where where the description sounds great and yet the guy who's supposed to be the embodiment of the teaching uh, and is um, 
is doing really horrible things that mm-hmm. should, they're like, it's not like subtly horrible. It's like really obviously horrible. Sure. And like the other senior students are making, making excuses. Like, like the guy I was practicing with on a, like a sort of a regular basis and who was a, a senior student of, of the Roshi, you know, he'd be like, I'm trying to remember the sort of things he would say, but like, oh, you know, people just, you know, don't understand that Roshi is a human being. They just want him to be like some sort of, uh, some sort of saint or like, well, no, that's not the point. Like, I don't care if Roshi had sex with people, just like maybe not his own students and maybe. Right. And in a coercive environment. And maybe not grab them during like (laughs) one-to-one interviews that are like part of the practice. Right. You know, it's not, it's not really complicated. So yeah, so I'm I'm no longer involved with that. And is group. that the part of the reason? Or it's the par- reason? part of the reason. So yeah. I you know, this stuff was sort of like starting to bubble up uh and I had other things going on that made it difficult to stay connected and and uh I was looking at sort of rejoining and started poking around and and sort of found all this information which which was not like shocking to me because I had had these conversations like mm-hmm. a few conversations but I didn't I didn't know the extent of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think I think it raises a real issue around yeah, around teaching and teaching authority and what mm-hmm. that means and how to deal with it. And, you know, how do you you know, if if you think that if you think that authority is corrupting or 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 that you need checks and balances on a teacher then like how do you reconcile that with a practice tradition that has no no tradition of that whatsoever right you know again in japanese then if you don't like the roshi that's fine you go to a, go to a different temple right roshi stays put and and you go someplace else which is you know works better when there's like temples all over the place sure um so yeah, there's a really great book about these sorts of issues. It's about the San Francisco Zen Center, which is a different a different tradition, but facing some similar issues. It's called uh, Shoes Outside the Door. I, mm-hmm. I highly, highly recommend it for anyone Excellent. who's interested in that particular sort of issue. So I want to just say uh, quickly that there's this wonderful collection of, I think, you know, very explicitly... Buddhism and possibly even Zen inspired little tales by Bertolt Brecht called the Herr Coiner stories. And um, they're wonderful and you might like them a lot, uh, but they're all about resisting authority because uh, they're written in exile from the Third Reich. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you one that you might like, okay. which is about a man who uh, is in an occupied city. There's a, an authoritarian government that's come in and has occupied the city and he's asked by one of the one of the occupiers uh will you be my servant and he sort of moves into this man's house and is like you know i'm here now your job is to serve me and says will you be my servant and for five years the man cooks for the occupier cleans for him takes care of him um, until five years later bloated fat and uh, sort of sedentary the occupier dies and the man wraps him up in a blanket and throws him out of the house and then says after having served him for five years in silence no (laughs) whoa yeah Huh. Yeah. 
So uh, there's all kinds of stories like this that you might be interested in uh, because they're all about how do you resist authority? How do you resist power when you don't have any? Right. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah. And they're also good and funny, and some of them are about driving cars. Uh, Brecht really liked cars. Okay. He said that when you drive, the best drivers don't just drive their car. They drive the car in front of them and the car behind them as well. Interesting. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Sophie, it seems to me like we've been going on for a while, and we should move on to our second topic. We should, but this was excellent. And uh, I'm, I'm actually chagrined to know that I wasn't as wrong as I thought I was going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you weren't, you weren't super wrong. I was hoping I was going to be more wrong. Wow. That was a really interesting segment that we just recorded just now. <laughs> Sophie, w- the things you said were very thought-provoking. The things you said were very startling to me, actually. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know until just a few moments ago. Yeah. Well, uh, we, both, we both learned. We both laughed. Um, let's move on to our second segment. Uh, right. So since this is self and other, and mm-hmm. we've already talked a little bit about other, but we're sort of start, we were starting from the idea of, of the self, uh, our next segment, it's, it's going to be a little more outward facing and a little bit more focused on at least ideals of communitarianism. Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk about Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism. Sophie, you are broadly sympathetic to the democratic socialist mission. A bunch of your academic work is focused on socialist intellectuals in interwar Germany. And now socialism is hot again. You must be thrilled. (laughs) This cranky, white-haired old guy is yelling at everyone. He wants a political revolution and Medicare for all. It's all your dreams come true. But Sophie, Mm. you are not thrilled. Mm -mm. For Bernie Sanders is not preaching that good old-fashioned social democracy. He's got his own thing going on here. Uh, So what's not clear to me is whether your problem is with Bernie's politics, per se, or just that what he calls socialism is weak tea as far as you're concerned. Uh, You know, social, uh, socialized medicine, that's that's good, I guess. But again, that's something that, you know, Canada has and no one would call Canada a socialist country. So um, so so what exactly is your problem with Bernie, Sophie? Is it (laughs) is it? Uh, is it the weakness of his tea? Are you a commie? Are you ready for political revolution? Uh, to talk to me about this. Well, uh, it's going to be disappointing to you that I will say that I think Bernie Sanders is a red herring here. Um, it's not that I oh. don't think that there is a critique you, to me. It's made. just to point out, you came up with the topic. <laughs> well, right, but that's just that, right. So you, you red herring me. I did. Well, okay. I mean, I th- I'll say why. I mean, I think there is a critique to be made of Sanders, and I, I think, you know, we could have that discussion, and maybe we will. But I think um, the, the thing that sort of has been really interesting to me, but also surprising and frustrating, and I know from last time that you think that uh, when I say things like certain kinds of historical developments have made my job harder, you're like, well, your job is to explain history to people, so suck mm-hmm. it up. So I'm yeah, not really yeah. trying to complain and say like, oh, wow, this has made my life so hard. But I think part of the thing that's been interesting and frustrating for me is that um, socialism, and we can talk about what that exactly means, uh, Just it can't just be whatever Bernie says it is this week. And one of the things that has been really interesting for me has been to see how many people in the United States now self-identify as democratic socialists. Mm -hmm. And then when you talk to them or more often, to be honest, you see what they're talking about in social media. If you know anything about the history of social democracy, you will know that, um, 
this is these two things like bear almost no uh, relationship to one another at all. I saw a meme that's been going around that says something like social Democrats are neither, neither Marxists nor communists. They are capitalists who simply want certain kinds of regulations. And while that's true in so far as people calling them social Democrats themselves, social Democrats or uh, democratic socialists could perhaps be all those things. That's there. There are such things as social democratic or democratic socialist parties that have platforms and histories and policies. And and that's really not at all the case. Uh, It's really, it's just not an accurate representation. So that's sort of part of why I'm interested in this. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about details. So, so the 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 issue is that social democracy is a, a real thing. It's, it's, it's a, a real term. Thing. It's a term that means something. And what these um, uh, Bernie Bros and Bernie gals, what they're talking about, is not social democracy. Well, let's take it away from the level of the individual just a little okay. bit, so that I don't get a lot of you know hate from people who love Bernie Sanders. Because as I said, I don't think that's really the issue. Well, but that's why you're anonymous, <laughs> pseudonymous. <laughs> Um, it's more, so it's less about like what people say or think and more about the idea that there is a kind of evolution of, um, a set of institutions, theories, policies, political events, and so on. Uh, that is, as you said, a real thing and it's worth kind of trying to know what that is. Um, socialism is really hard to get at that. I, I mean, I'm not surprised that people are unsure because um, socialism has a really long history and is incredibly multivalent and multivocal. So that means that um, there's not just one, there's never been just one way of thinking about it or just one way of defining it. And even though people like Marx and Engels and later Lenin make these really intense, important interventions and sort of try to corral all of these various strands Mm. um, and cut off in some ways certain avenues that are different or um, divergent. Nevertheless, there is something we can put our finger on and sort of say, this is what democratic socialism is. So what is what is it then? Well, so let's start with just sort of socialism as a term. So I I would say that it's, as I said, it's multivalent, um, but it's an... uh, an anti-capitalist political, cultural, and social um, movement. And it dates from, I'd say, the early 19th century. And it's defined by um, a critique of hyper-individualism, of industrialism, um, and class distinctions. It's preoccupied always with economics, uh, puts faith, but, but isn't always, um, you know, sort of thinking about economics the way that Marx is, uh, obviously he has to make a, an intervention and kind of take hold of this. And that's, that's where we get what we often think of as socialism now, but socialism always puts faith in, uh, the collective or in communitarian solutions to social and spiritual and economic problems, um, and has a, a kind of preoccupation with the state, uh, that I think is really important. Um, I would say from the start, it's characterized by a commitment to egalitarianism, and that includes gender gender equality. But gender equality is intermittently (laughs) but consistently deferred. It's always kind of kicked down the road but never discarded. And so I think that it's it's really interesting um, and important to think about the fact that um, this starts as uh, as a movement that criticizes... uh, class distinctions rising or, or intensifying in the industrial revolution. Um, 
but you know, there's things like romantic social, there are people like romantic socialists or utopian socialists or Christian socialists, um, who are really very spiritual in their, in their outlook. I mean, if you want to think about people like this, you know, you can think about somebody like Charles Fourier who says really kind of bonkers things. I mean, he's wonderful. He's bonkers in the best way, but he says all kinds of things about, um, animals. He's really into social animals like beavers and bees. Right. And he says like, why can't we be happy in our work the way that beavers are, you know, or bees, they really like their work. And he talks about something called passionate attraction. He says, if we were passionately attracted to our work, we would be happy. We wouldn't be miserable. And so he has this, all these sort of like weird uh, ideas about how people should organize their society so that people are doing exactly the kinds of work that makes the most them the most happy. And this includes sort of having certain people who um, are responsible for social and sexual reproduction and other people who are who remain celibate. So it's it, you know this is sort of I don't think Bernie would recognize this as socialism at all. Uh, so, so that's just something to kind of keep in mind that there's this like really long history. Um, there are these French romantic socialists who are doing, who are sort of like, they're looking for the female Messiah. Um, British uh, so early socialists are also looking for a female Messiah. Um, there's an idea that there's the world is sort of out of balance because um, men have become so dominant. So we're looking for a, a, a female priestess to kind of get us back on the right track. I mean, all these kinds of things are part of the history of socialism. And I think it's, you know, it's worth thinking about those things. Have you, have you ever heard of any? of this does this ever cross your path uh i mean none of this female messiah stuff i guess i mean i read a little bit of feuerbach mm -hmm. as like pre pre-marx mm -hmm. com communist theory uh what was it like toward the philosophy of the future I think it was called something like that, mm -hmm. but I, I honestly don't remember anything about it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, eventually you get this thing that's, we call social democracy or democratic socialism. And those, those two things are interchangeable as terms. Um, and there are sort of like two moments I think that, so, so if we're trying to understand these words and what they mean, because you know, words do have meaning and, uh, huh. <laughs> I know, I know. This is like a like a t like a hot topic here, like whether words mean things. But but words get attached to to like real things, like social movements. It's like worth thinking about what they mean. But um, so democratic socialism is democratic initially in the early nineteenth century because along with the struggle for labor um, and economic rights and power is the struggle for the franchise. So the struggle for democratic rights and power, the idea that uh, there should be a broad franchise, voting rights. So, um, and this is something I think Americans, um, sometimes have a hard time with because remember in most of Europe, most people aren't voting until much later than most people. Well, maybe that's not even true, but in, in the United States, we have this idea anyway, that, um, that we have this democracy and that there's the people who vote and they vote for elected officials and there's representation. And that's not the case in, in, in Europe until uh, different later points in time. And so there's a struggle uh, both for labor rights and for voting rights. And so that's so, part of the reason it's called democratic. So socialism. it's called part of the reason it's called democratic socialism is because they were actively advocating for democracy. Right. Right. Okay. So I, I, I guess I always thought democratic socialism was, was contrasted with, um, like revolutionary socialism. Okay, so the second there's a second point in time where it becomes really important to differentiate democratic socialism or or at least to 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 press on on the democratic part. And that's somewhere around well the the, the fissures, the 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 divisions, the breaks start earlier, but so somewhere between the first world war and the Russian revolution. Um you have to begin to differentiate yourself as a democratic socialist because there's a very strong, powerful and exciting strain of socialism maybe Bolshevism, 
maybe communism, depending on where you are, um, that is, if not authoritarian, then profoundly disinterested in parliamentary democracy. So um, it's not necessarily that uh, hmm, that that a Bolshevist, Bolshevik would say that they, they aren't interested in democracy, but they would understand democracy very differently than a democratic socialist would. They're not interested in voting in a parliamentary system. They're not interested in representative democracy. And eventually they're not interested in anything that we would we as sort of, you know, Americans would see as democratic society. Mm-hmm. Um, but you raise a really interesting question about revolution versus reform. And that's something that, you know, has a really long history in the history of social democracy as well. And, and, and we can talk about that. There's a lot of ins and outs, but I think, I think it's important to say like, Social democracy certainly becomes reformist, so not revolutionary, um, or, or not a revolutionary party, or not a revolutionary apparatus. But that doesn't mean that uh, social democrats accept or embrace capitalism. It just means that they have complicated historical reasons for not thinking that revolution is the right path forward in the moment that they're living. Right, like they could still be advocating for real, real socialism, meaning you know state control of the means of production mm-hmm. and wh- or, you or know, public ab- control let's say yeah the abolition mm-hmm. of private property wh- whatever but if but they want to accomplish those things through parliamentary means um, that as well as saying okay well we do want a revolution but the conditions that for revolution are really not right and there's and if we push it now what we get will not be a socialist revolution it'll be something else and people looked at uh, at, at Russia after the October Revolution, and said that and said mm-hmm. this isn't the real revolution. This is something else. Sure, not not without reason. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I mean, and and this is so. So if we if we're going to talk about Bernie, I mean, this is where I sort of get confused because on the one hand, yes, he is certainly. I mean, you're calling it weak tea. I I'm not. I mean, I'm a cautious fearful person so i'm not i I mean i right like my sympathy for the social democrats is is one of sort of like okay i understand why they're why they get cautious and why they get reformist but um and i'm talking about you know early 20th century but uh you know bernie's language around revolution seems completely um in, inauthentic to me. I mean, what is this revolution that he's talking about? I, I don't, I, maybe someone can explain to me that, it, you know, is it that it feels so exciting and passionate that it feels like a revolution? Because um, I, I, it doesn't seem like any definition of revolution that I, as an historian, am uh, familiar with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough to, you know, I wish, I wish we were recording this uh, a year ago. It would, I feel like it would be, um, more more trenchant more mm-hmm, more mm-hmm. topical but but it, it is tough to say exactly what he's talking about when he talks about a political revolution it seems like what he means is just some sort of mass political engagement in support of progressive causes but that's not really a revolution that's that's no. political engagement yeah um, yeah i mean i think the you other- know like like it, i mean I mean, whatever, like people argue all the time about what counts as a revolution, but, Absolutely. you know, typically you would have some sort of change of form of government. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's fair to say. And and, or, yeah. or really radical cultural or social change, um, I think would also count as a revolution. You know, we, we think about 
the sexual revolution say that. I think that's a that's like yeah, a, okay. that's a fair t- use of the term. But I think for me, one of the really important things that is missing is is a is a party. I think for me, as a historian right. of at some level of socialism, uh, social democracy is party politics. It's always been party politics. It's about theoreticians. It's about membership, the, the membership and the leadership hashing it out. Um, it's about the relationship between labor unions and politics. Um, it's about theoreticians yelling at each other, activists yelling at each other, um, really debating, uh, trying to hammer out policies, trying to hammer out platforms. Um, it's, it's international. That's the other thing I should have said is that socialism is international almost right from the beginning. Um, and, uh, I, 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 I don't know how to imagine, I don't know how to conceive of social democracy without a party. I just mm-hmm. don't know how to kind of think, let alone, a, you know, kind of a set of national parties that come together in an international forum. Um, you know, if, if you want to watch a really good movie about social Demo- democratic party politics, you should watch the German film Rosa Luxemburg because it's all about sort of people who are passionate about politics and about uh, the world they live in, who are also total theory wonks and like just, you know, love each other and hate each other and fight and are ultimately, you know, trying to sort of advance this common cause. Um, and I, I don't know how you can be without a party and sort of be describing social democracy. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So, and I, maybe, and maybe, maybe that points at, at something interesting here, you know, we're, we're sort of looking at self and other and relationships between self and other. And, and, you know, I don't want to turn this podcast into just, uh, uh, slagging on Bernie Sanders for 40 minutes. Um, not do that. Let's not do that. You know, I, I to be fair, you know, I I grew up in Vermont. He was my congressman all, you know, uh, all the whole time I was growing up, and and I, I actually have a, a lot of affection for him. As um, do I. I mean, this is not at all. This has almost. This is why I say he's a red herring. I don't yeah. think it has anything to do with. I mean, let's so, send him a Valentine. We love you, Bernie. We, we just. I just don't think that you're talking about what anybody else is talking about when they use the same words as you. So, but I, but I, I think there's there's something interesting we're getting at here, where where you're talking about a communitarian political orientation, you know that that's that's about uh, communal ownership of at least some forms of property, um, pursued through uh, uh, the means of a of a party apparatus, Correct. engaged in parliamentary democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know Bernie Sanders is a political loner. You know this. This is a guy who who left the Communist Party, I think, because he was he was a little too interested in practical politics for them. So I think <laughs> sure. they kicked him out. Uh-huh. That's my recollection, anyway. Um, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. There was there was like a little Vermont Communist Party back in the eighties or seventies, maybe. Um, so. Uh, yeah, but he, you know, he was an independent the entire time. He was in the House of Representatives. He was was an independent the whole time he was in the Senate up until he decided he wanted to run for president and wanted to sort of borrow the Democratic Party's um, party apparatus. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. he joined the party. But you know, yeah, he's not really much of a party guy. He he, for all the time he spent advocating progressive causes, he hasn't really done anything to build. 
uh, a party infrastructure to support those things. He hasn't done really done anything to support. And there even is a, a, a progressive party in Vermont, the, the the progressive party. And, you know, he didn't join that party and hasn't really done anything to support them either. So I think I, I don't know what to make of this, but I think it's, it's an interesting, an interesting tension here between a, absolutely a, a man with these very communitarian ideals who seems to pursue them through very individualistic <laughs> Uh, means. I think that's really well said. And, you know, I, I will say that I think, uh, you know, social democracy traditionally, historically is party politics, but it's also about communitarianism in all kinds of ways. I mean, this is very well documented. It's, you know, it's the shadow society. It's the shadow state. It's the, it's the idea that particularly in Germany, but in other places too, if you were a social democrat, if you were a socialist, um, you couldn't be part of mainstream society in the same kinds of ways. And so, you know, you were barred from certain kinds of, um, uh, associations, associational communities. And so you made your own, you know, you couldn't be part of the, the singing club or the, or the cycling club. So you made your own socialist singing club or your socialist cycling club. I mean, unions are right. It's like the union song, the union is our home, the idea. And and again, there's a tension between union politics and socialist politics, but there's Mm -hmm. also a connection The the idea is that, you know, families are engaged in this and communities and um, shops are engaged with that, with it. And that it is, it's about a kind of radical communitarian which sometimes I think we wouldn't recognize because we think of communes as a kind of 1960, the, the 1960s version, which is, you know, has to do with a certain kind of social intimacy, sexual intimacy, uh, kind of relaxation of, um, of social rules, which I don't think was present in the same way in, say, the um, mid early 20th century. But nevertheless, I mean, these are communities that see themselves as indivisible. And I think it's a really interesting point that you make that this is actually kind of a diffuse, much more diffuse. uh, I mean, it's one thing to be at a rally with many thousands of people. It's another thing to be on strike together uh, or to go with your, uh, you know, your workers to another village to help support people who are on strike and bring them food and things like this. So um, that's, that's a, that's a different piece of this, I think. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. interesting. So I want to push back on, on one of your themes here though. So mm. one, one of the things you've, you've said it a couple of times is that wor- words mean things. I know and you don't think they do. No, I, I do. I do. And just, uh, but, but well, hear me out here. I, I think they mean things, but I think the things that they mean can change over time. So you've been talking agree. a lot. Mm, mm-hmm. I you've do been agree. talking. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so you've been, you've been talking a lot about sort of 19th century up to like interwar social democracy, but let's, sure. let's take stock of the world of social democracy in, you know, first quarter, 21st century. Sure. Uh, world like the social so democrats like the in welfare Germ- state well so let's say let's look at the social democratic party in germany like sure they're just sort of a bog standard center-left party now aren't they well so that's complicated i mean it is true i that- mean i'm sure they have a platform that says yeah yeah socialism no well that's what's interesting it's like re- you have to re- you have to remember that there was i mean the thing that happens in the interim here is obviously there is a, a, a conflagration there is world war ii in, in germany uh, yeah, and in, yeah, okay. you know, the, in the world. And one of the reasons that World War II goes the way that it does at the end is the Soviet Union, right? The Soviet Union it's wins the war. Big, big part of it, yeah. Big part I, of I it, I saw right? Enemy at the Gates. Sure, I did too. 
Yeah, we've talked about the, we've talked about yeah <laughs> we've talked about the moment of, of Rachel. Let's keep going. Let's but, keep okay. going. Okay. Anyway, yeah. um, so and 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 you know you end up so then there's the Cold War, right? And so you end up with these two Germanys. One is capitalist, one is communist. The mm-hmm. SPD, the Social Democratic Party, has to find a way to exist in West Germany. And in the 1950s, they officially repudiate Marxist Marxism. Um, and they adopt something that they call something like ethical ethical socialism that sort of like claims to have a less economic uh, rubric or, 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 or analysis or something like that. And, and that gets kind of walked back a little bit. But, I mean, when you have half of Europe officially communist under a Soviet-style authoritarian kind of socialism, uh, that makes things kind of wonky kind of difficult um but i mean i th- so so but i think there also is like with the gradual adoption of welfare the welfare state in europe which is now being dismantled a little bit um yes social democratic parties get more centrist they get more reformist because they don't need to make a revolution if they're getting all the things that they already want and but, by the but, way that happens that happens earlier too that happens in the 1890s that happens in the in the early teens as well but i mean let's doesn't that mean then like like the things that they want are things like nationalized health care in some sort of form you know uh uh social insurance mm-hmm. Um, well, right, but you can get social. Insur- I mean, Bismarck gives you social insurance. Yeah, well, so so, but I'm saying like the the this is the the sort of social welfare state, the the Northern European social welfare state. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I guess I'm not like if you're not overturning capitalism, if like if that's if you're satisfied with a with a social welfare state that you know includes higher levels of taxation than than the uh, English speaking world, but you know still includes private property and private enterprise but just a more robust welfare state it seems like that it seems like that's not so different from um what bernie is talking about that may be so so maybe maybe the issue isn't that bernie has an idiosyncratic definition of of democratic socialism as that contemporary social democrats uh have drifted very far from the vision of the early 20th century well that may be the case. I think part of the problem with socialism is always, and this is what my students get really frustrated with, there isn't much of a vision of the future um, in in the most precious of the texts. And one of the reasons for that, um, and everybody sort of buys into this from Brecht to Marx, is that, uh, or rather the other way around, Marx to Brecht, the idea is that you don't want to say too much what the future is going to look like because we all have to build it together. We all have to, and this is where my students groan. They're like, just tell us what you want. Just tell us what you mean when you say these things, right? And the idea is, no, we can't foreclose on anything. We have to kind of let this happen. And so I don't know what the, I mean, ultimately, I don't know what it would exactly have looked like. I mean, I know what Fourier says. He says that the sea will turn to lemonade and the anti-animals will appear and like there will be an anti-shark to carry us around in the water. So that's a whole other thing, right? Like it'll be paradise on earth and the female messiah will come. Did you, did you say anti-shark? Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. There's an anti-lion too. It's awesome. I mean, how can you not love this? It's so great. And it's not at all clear to me whether he's serious or not. I don't know enough about Fourier, the person, to sort of know how I'm supposed to take these things. But, um, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I, I don't get the sense that Bernie is particularly interested in a very, very strong, very large state. 
Um, and I think he also doesn't understand Northern Europe very well. And so his sort of like, like, we'll just make everything like Denmark. It's just, that's not going to happen. Um, uh, but, but I think also because we don't have the same history as Denmark, um, I think words do change over time. I mean, that's the whole point of studying history, but I also think that, I mean, it's kind of like to put it in, to put it in your terms, maybe, and you can tell me, tell me that I'm wrong, but I mean, we still, we have diagnoses and we have these, like, we use like a name for something and you put the, you put the symptoms or the, I'm way out on a limb here, into the category and you say, okay, like, this is sort of what this means, right? I mean, you have to, you have to assign who's, some who's, kind of... Who's we? What are we talking about? I'm talking about, like, well, I'm trying to put it in terms, like, that you as someone who is working in mental health would understand. I mean, right? You have, you could say... So here's, here's the thing, though, but, like, you can, you can do that with mental health diagnoses, and, and it is not without controversy in sure. mental health. Let me be very clear about that. <laughs> but, but there's a group of people who have decided who've appointed themselves in charge of this sort of thing. Right. And they, they put out a book that says, you know, here are the diagnostic criteria. Like here are the things that we consider real sure. mental diseases, mental illnesses, and here are the diagnostic criteria that yeah. we think. And, and, you know, they have their reasons for doing things the way they do them. But, um, uh, like there, there, there isn't anyone in that role for social democracy or, or any, or, or politics in general. Well, not true. If not, you have not, a party, then you have, then you get to make those So, But that gets us right back where we are now, where it's like the social democracy is whatever the social, the party that calls themselves social Democrats says it is. And, and again, like maybe what they're talking about, you know, is, is just a, a robust welfare state. And May, I don't, maybe right? if that's, if that's what they say it is. Well, it's not just about what the policies are going to be. It's, a, it's, I mean, socialism is also an explanatory lens. It's a way of explaining the world, why the world is the way it is, why the things that are bad are bad, how to fix them, how to understand them. What are the causes of people's suffering, right? It's not just about how do we, what do we do right now? This is why it's powerful, right? It's not just about what do we do right now to fix this problem. It's also, um, how, I mean, this is the intervention that Marx makes. That's really powerful. This is, he says, this is how history goes. Um, this is how human development goes. This is how societies evolve. And this is why we suffer. And that's why it's powerful. I mean, it's one of the reasons it's powerful because mm -hmm. it says this is why. And I think that's what Bernie does tap into. He says, like, these things are the causes. But I think that he's not, I mean, he's not Rosa Luxemburg. He's not Lenin. Um, he doesn't have a really super high level intellectual apparatus to sort of, you know, he's not Karl Kautsky or something like that to say like, okay, here's all it's, it's, you know, it's fairly crude. And so, um, I, you know, again, I think that's where it kind of disconnects from, from the tradition. I mean, at least we can say there are traditions, there are, his, there are, uh, strands or streams uh, of thought and action that have something to do with one another and they don't yeah, just die sure. because people die, right? Like Karl Kautsky dies. So now there's no more socialists in the world. That's not how it works. Sure. Sure. So, and all these people were buddies, you know, they all knew each other because they were all in the second international together and, you know, you yelling so at each Bernie's other. Bernie's not a real socialist because he doesn't have the right friends. <laughs> I really do feel, I mean, I, I, I don't really think that he's the point here, I know, but, I know. but, but I, but I think that if there are ordinary Americans who want to say, who want to get interested in social democracy and who want to say that that's how they identify politically, then they should have the right friends. And some of their friends are dead and have been dead for a really long time, but who wrote a lot of, but wrote a lot of really useful things and they should make friends with those friends. So they can read, read the things that these dead people wrote. You should always read the things that so, dead people wrote. 
Sophie, this has been really interesting, but it's uh, very before, long now. Well, it's not really because because remember okay. we were talking for a long time before. Yeah, yeah, okay. Before we we really started this, but but I want to I want to shift the discussion a little bit before we wrap it up and just and just get into like what um why why is this important why well like what why do you, why do you care about it and what's like what's interesting to you that makes you want to study these people. Sure. Um, yeah. Like what's, what's compelling about all this to you? Well, I would say there's two things that I think are, I mean, there's many things that are interesting, but I'll, t- I'll say two. One is that I don't think that you can understand, and this may have changed now. We may, now that we're like sort of right, like in the first, qu- we're well into the first quarter of the 21st century, these things may have shifted, but I don't think you can understand the 20th century at all without understanding things like the cold war and even, bef- even forget the cold war, but um, you can't understand the Russian Revolution without understanding what socialism is and why the socialism that gets played out in Russia and in the Soviet Union is different from other kinds of socialism. Um, the other reason that I think it's so, – so I think that's just useful. You know, you, you need to know these things. Um, it's, a, it's a political philosophy. It's a social movement. It's a state form that lots of the world, including – in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the decolonizing world seizes hold of. So <clears throat> I think that's pretty important. And, and, you know, people throw around these words, and if we we're going to throw them around, we should have some clue that, of what they mean. I will stand by that. The other thing that I think is really interesting is that, especially in the earlier period that I'm talking about, um, you have this very radical group of people uh, who are in a kind of separate society, but who nevertheless are quite respectable in ways that would be surprising to us. So I think that there's a kind of lack of uh, cultural disconnect, which is interesting. So I'll say what I mean, which is like when we think about uh, radicals, we often think about people who look very different, um, who talk different, who live differently. Um, You know, we think about the 1960s and 70s and we say like, okay, like there was a sort of break and you could tell who was radical or at least who thought of themselves as radical because of what they were wearing and the music they were listening to. There's like a cultural aspect to this. And that's less true um, of socialists in the 20th century. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, these are people who are um, radical in thought and action and yet, you know, are living in, in in a way that is pretty mainstream and and you know marx is quite the victorian and it's i think that's a really interesting thing to 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 notice and to get interested in so let let me let me try my question again like what what about all this really speaks to you like those are those are interesting things i say like if you want to understand european history in the 20th century you really and and the u.s and uh the global south or however we're gonna call it you need to understand politics yeah 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 but like what about it really speaks to you? Because this is not just like an instrumental thing for you where you're like, oh, I really want to understand this thing, so I better, right? Like, Well, that's how like it started. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, it's just, it seems like there's something, something about this that, that speaks to you more personally than that. I don't know if I can put my finger on it. I mean, I think one thing that becomes really interested, interesting after the split between social Democrats and communists is that um, they're both between a rock and a hard place. And I don't, I think there's like a, a terrible dilemma. It's, it's very hard to do the right thing in either camp. How do you, I mean, you're either, you know, you're either sort of uh, uh, an extreme violent authoritarian or you're a kind of milk toast reformist who can't get anything done. I mean, those are the, those are the accusations. And it's, 
that's fascinating, right? And especially mm-hmm. when you have something as urgent as fascism to combat, the idea that like here are these two groups that have a halfway decent chance of combating it, and at least for a, quite a long time they failed to do so, at least in part because they can't get themselves together to work together. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I agree with that. And I think that's something that we can think about in our political moment as well. And it's something that I would caution against. I mean, certainly don't throw your values out with the bathwater. But the idea that, and we've talked about this a lot, that the left loves to slice itself into narrower and narrower factions. And whoever is slightly to your right or slightly to your left or slightly the wrong, you know, says the wrong thing is now your enemy. Um, and, and it's worth fighting that person or that faction more than it's worth fighting your common opponent. I think is something that's exemplified by the left in the socialist left in Europe, you know, in, at many moments in time. And we should, you know, we could take that as a cautionary tale. Mm, I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Well, I think we should come back to this theme because I, I, I think there's something about the, just about the, the communitarian ideals that, mm-hmm. that you find really compelling. And I, I want to figure out a way to get you to talk about that. <laughs> um, sure. Community's uh, nice. As, Let's be friends. Yeah. I don't know. Let's be friends. Okay. Well, it's okay. a kind of militant. It's a militarized friendship, right? It's a it's a militant friendliness. That's. I mean, I, it's a contradiction. It's a wonderful contradiction. I think it's fascinating. Okay. Uh, well, let's let's leave it there. I think I think we're out of time, and this this is going to be a long episode. So It'll be we'll, a long episode, so people should okay, just though. settle in, get their settle Star in. Wars blanket, yep, their glass of water, hot get themselves cocoa, all cozy, yep. Um, and as you know, as we said at the beginning of the episode, go rate and review us in iTunes, or you won't get the bonus episode. So pretty much, we know you all want that. Yeah. Um, you can check out our website at tmwiw.net. You can see all the show notes for all the episodes. Um, you can email us at tmwiwinfo at gmail dot com, or just use the contact form on the website. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter at TMWIW Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Amos Worth. And don't follow Sophie on Twitter because Mm-mm. she fears and hates it. It's true. And if you want to know more about that, you can listen to episode four, whatever one we yeah, just S- did. Yeah, S- S1E4 Tech V Tech. <laughs> um, hey, so that's all the time we have. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Till next time. Bye. Bye.